0: Hello, this is John Cleese, and you're listening to the Podcast Network. Music Welcome back, everyone, to the Napoleon Bonaparte podcast, episode 30, The Journey to Elba. Welcome back, Mr. Markham. How are you, sir?
1: Episode 30. My goodness, who would ever have guessed?
0: Who would have thought we could spend 30 hours talking about Napoleon? Actually, it's probably more than that. It's probably more like 40 hours. And we're you know still a long way from the end.
1: Oh, it's at least forty, maybe fifty hours. The last episode went two, and many of them have gone an hour and a half anyway. Uh, that's what you get when you sign up for a podcast with someone who's long-winded like like Markham here. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, <clears throat> it's been a really uh, a great great deal and 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 a lot of fun and and a number of uh, people have posted on our site that they they really don't look forward to it ending and. And and I posted earlier this evening that I don't look forward to it ending either, but I'll tell you right now, I'm I'm not completely convinced that it ever will end. And
0: uh, we, we had a lot of great feedback on the last episode as well. Uh, a lot of people, in fact, somebody I was speaking to on the telephone this morning, a, a Melbourne listener, Tony, said uh, how much he enjoyed it and how... You know the running time of two hours was was not a problem. There, there was um, Ian Cath, who's one of our listeners, is a guy up in Queensland in Australia, commented on the site that uh, you know, all the experts on podcasting say that a podcast shouldn't run any more than five to twenty minutes, <laughs> and we keep uh, blowing that out of the water. But obviously, people are enjoying the tale, and it all comes down to the the caliber of your storytelling ability.
1: Well, I don't know about that, Cameron. Although I appreciate the comment, I. I find it at least slightly amusing that there's uh, so-called uh, experts on podcasting, or that there is some kind of uh, a, a body of of evidence as to what should or should not be the case when it comes to successful podcasting. Because to me, at least, podcasting is still such a a new way of of communicating information, and especially a new way for communicating. Uh, history uh, that I'm not sure we have enough experience—not just you and I, but but historical podcasting in general—to to really determine what what works and what doesn't and what's successful and what's not. But I'll tell you, I consider what we do very successful, and while I I, I appreciate the comments that you and others make about my contribution, I think that your contribution is is also extraordinarily important both as a historian which you are but also because you took the initiative to 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 create this whole thing not just your podcast network which has podcasts in a number of uh, of uh, topics but to create this history podcast and the history of napoleon podcast and and for that you deserve as i've said many many times an extraordinary amount of credit because you have done more than most sort of standard historians ever will have a chance to do to promote Napoleonic history and the understanding of that era.
0: Well, thank you, sir. And that obviously leads me into the parcel I received last week. Uh, I was running out the door late last week to, um, to an event in Melbourne that I was speaking at and um, checked the mailbox on the way out to jump in the car, and there was this huge envelope uh, stock, chock full of stuff uh, with the uh, International Napoleonic Society uh, details on the front of the envelope and I thought well, that's very interesting I don't know why I'd be receiving something in the mail from the International Napoleonic Society, I've ever, never had anything to do with it outside of my relationship with you and as our listeners probably aware you're the Executive Vice President and Editor-in-Chief of the INS and I opened up the envelope as I jump in the car and I'm um, f- there's a big folder inside of it that has lots of Napoleonic material and a letter. and um i'll I'll take the liberty of reading the letter to the audience because it's kind of special. It uh, says, Mr. Cameron Riley, dear Mr. Riley, our mutual friend and colleague, Mr. David Markham has informed me about the excellent work that you do on the Napoleonic podcast. He has also made a very strong recommendation that you be made a fellow in our society. Having full and ultimate confidence in David Markham, I agreed and you will be receiving shortly from our admissions committee the necessary documents. In the meantime, I am sending you a selection of documents which you will hopefully find informative. I want to congratulate you on becoming a fellow in the International Napoleonic Society. And I certainly look forward to the great pleasure of meeting with you one of these days. Please accept with this letter my cordial and personal best greetings. Sincerely yours, Ben Wider. Wider or Weeder? How does he pronounce it? Ben Weider. Weeder. President. And um I, I have to say, sir, I I I have never been more thrilled. It, it's uh, I I'm sort of in two minds about it. On one hand, I'm obviously incredibly thrilled to be uh uh, uh, accepted as a member of the Society and to be recommended by your good self. But I, I do feel that compared to the likes of yourself and, and Ben Weeder and the other great historians that are part of the Society, my contribution has really been nothing more than, you know, recording your uh, b- beautiful tenor once a month over the last couple of years. But, uh, you know, it, it is exciting to know that we're reaching... 30,000 people a month at the moment and, and telling him the tale about Napoleon. And for my small part in that, I'm I'm thrilled to be contributing globally to uh, greater awareness about the role of this most great of men.
1: Well, well Cameron, uh, again, thank you for your kind comments, both about my beautiful tenor. And I think many of my students over the years and possibly my wife would which is just how beautiful my tenor can be sometimes but but uh, uh, I just think that any of our listeners know that you do a lot more than as you put it push the buttons or or simply provide the forum your your knowledge of Napoleonic history your research and coming up with the appropriate quotes and and, and material from his letters your your understanding of the importance of Napoleon and the and and the ultimate uh, uh, goodness, if you will, of, of, of Napoleon and benefit of Napoleon in, to, in history uh, is extremely important. And it also has to be said that, that uh, you know, it's because of you that a lot more people hear about Napoleon than, than would ever read most of the history books that get produced by, by people like me. I mean, uh, a, a book that I would write on Napoleon, unless I was particularly lucky and really good promotion and, and so on would would very very unlikely sell thirty thousand uh, copies, uh, and that even includes uh, something like Napoleon for Dummies, uh, which which I can assure you has not sold thirty thousand copies. Uh, I keep hoping it will, obviously, but but no. Your your podcast you have brought Napoleon into the twenty first century technologically, and I think that's an extremely high. Uh, achievement for for you and 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 clearly you deserve to be a fellow and and by the way for our listeners out there to be a fellow is considered and uh, in, in, in the the field of history and the Napoleonic history to be to be quite an honor uh, you have to be recommended the International Napoleonic Society is not uh, a membership society where you pay your your thirty or forty dollars a year and you get your magazine and you you get a membership card uh, all, all of our fellows don't have to pay anything to be a member, uh, but they do have to be nominated by someone, and, and that nomination has to show uh, that they've made a significant contribution. Most of our fellows are are, are scholars, historians, many of them are professors. Uh, but there are some who have contributed in other ways, uh, curators of important uh, Napoleonic museums, for example, and so on. I think you are the first whose uh, fellowship was awarded uh, largely but again not entirely uh, based on on the, the the technological contribution you've made uh, but that's an extremely important uh, contribution so don't sell yourself short my friend it's uh it's well uh, you, you, you you well deserve. Uh, the honor you've been given, and it was a real honor for me to be able to be instrumental in seeing that you got it.
0: Well, I've added it to my list of firsts. I, I you know, I started the first uh, Australian podcast a few years ago, and I started the world's first podcasting business a couple of months after that. And there's been a number of firsts over the last couple of years that I have been uh, very fortunate to, to make. We also invented Skype recording for podcasts, where well, you and I are on Skype now. But, uh, I also, I, I'm guessing here. I don't have any data to back this up, but I, I'm guessing that I'm probably the first podcaster to be made a fellow in any historical uh, society. So it's it, you know it's it's very exciting. Anyway, it
1: was a great I would honor. Not, I, I would not be a bit surprised.
0: <laughs> it's a great honor, and um, you know it's 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 very exciting, but. Let us move on because I'm sure the the audience didn't come to hear us talk about that. Today we have a very exciting episode. Now
1: we do, we do. But let me let me interrupt just for one more second, if sure, I will. Sure. Uh, because speaking of the International Napoleonic Society, I want our our listener to be among the very very first to hear of the sixth International Napoleonic Congress. Uh, the previous ones have been in Dinard, France, and in in Italy. Uh, in, in, in Israel and Poland and the Republic of Georgia. Uh, and this coming July 7th to 11th, uh, we're going to be in Ajaccio, Corsica, the, the capital of Corsica and, of course, Napoleon's birthplace. We're going to have a, a series of, of speakers, including uh, the latest fellow of the International Napoleonic Society, uh, Cameron uh, Riley. Uh, we're going to have historians and scholars from all around the world. Uh, and, and anyone out there who's listening who would like to present a paper to the conference or who would simply like to attend should email me at Imperialglory at comcast.net or just go to my website or the podcast website hold of me. And I can send you information. Uh, it should be an absolutely marvelous. Uh, time, uh, and if you've not been to one of the International Napoleonic Society conferences, uh, then this would be a wonderful one to attend, uh, simply because it's in about as Napoleonic a location as you can possibly imagine, and uh, I, I hope that uh, a lot of our listeners will will uh, choose to participate.
0: I hope so too. It will be a tremendous opportunity to spend some time with uh, listeners of the podcast. So where do they find out more information about how to register from your website? Well, they can,
1: they can contact me uh, by email. I don't have anything on my website yet, and the International Napoleonic Society website will also have something soon. I just did a broadcast uh, or a, broad, a broadside, I should say, uh, of emails, two or 300 today to some of the scholars on, on my mailing list, and I wanted to promote it on our podcast uh, but if you are interested in participating, uh, just to send me an email for now, and I will forward to you the the by email the printed documents that I've uh, put together, and and I'll add your name to my list of people who will get additional information as I produce it.
0: And perhaps uh, I can post the information that you sent in in your email up on the uh, Napoleon website, the podcast network website.
1: Absolutely, I'd be delighted.
0: Okay. Uh, and by the way, just mentioning the Napoleon for Dummies book, um, I, I, I think that everybody listening to this show should purchase a copy of that book, if, even if not for themselves, then for friends and family or for their children to spread the word. No better way of introducing the people that uh, you care about in your life to the wonderful story of Napoleon than Napoleon for Dummies by J. David Markham. It has to be said, they should all buy at least one, if not two copies of the book i coming up to christmas it's the ideal christmas present we're recording this in late october 2007 for listeners in the future anyway that's that's the well, you're, very,
1: you're 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 very kind and i'm sure someone will say oh there they go promoting the book again i i will say this i have uh, given quite a few copies of that and also napoleon's road to glory to to public libraries and high school libraries around the country, and and I do encourage people to do that because, uh, you know, both both of the books that the, the biographies that I've written and the Dummies in particular are really good introductions for the non-historian, the non-expert, the person who would just like, whether they're in school or or, or later in life, would like to know something about Napoleon. And if you really are interested in helping promote Napoleonic history, putting it in public and in high school libraries is one of the very best things you can do. And sure, will I make a couple of bucks? Well, you know, maybe. Uh, but way beyond that, uh, it's just a really good thing to do for those of us who are interested in this epic and history. And frankly, I didn't know you were even gonna mention uh, Napoleon for dummies, but, but you know, I will encourage people to do that and, and 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 I've done it myself. I've I've probably given 100 books anyway so far to uh to libraries ranging from college to high school to to general public libraries and and I'll probably give a lot more before I'm done because that's the real bottom line. It's not making David Markham money. It's trying to promote the history that that we all love and and think is so important for people to understand.
0: Here here Napoleon now this is i'm I'm really excited about this episode um, of course, where we left at the end of episode twenty nine was uh, Napoleon moving into the first abdication, saying farewell to the grand army and today we're going to talk about his first exile to the island of Elba and you know, whilst after the last episode, you and I had a quick chat and, and you said, well, it'll be a short episode, the next one. And <laughs> and I must note that we're already 16 minutes into the show and we haven't even started. But I, I, as I've said to you um, off air a couple of times, the, the the whole Elba period to me is one of the most intriguing, fascinating, exciting parts of the Napoleonic story, not because of necessarily anything significant that happened but because it is to me such a, a tremendous example of the character of the man and 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 for me the fast you know I'm not a military guy uh, and I'm I'm not so much fascinated with troop maneuvers when I think about Napoleon as I am about Napoleon the man the character of the individual and I think it, where character shows itself it tends to be in the extreme moments of our life, either an extreme success or an extreme disappointment or where we have a massive period of of failure, of of defeat. This is where character tends to show itself. And here we have a guy who has risen from relatively humble beginnings to become the most revered and feared man in all of Europe, if not in all of the world, for nigh on 20 years, he has stood over Europe uh, like a colossus. To have it finally taken away from him, to be defeated by the, the combined and, and uh, uh, constant efforts of his enemies, to be betrayed by the people closest to him, his Marshals that he raised from nothing to great wealth and, and power and titles to uh, members of his own family, like Joseph, who, who pretty much gave away Paris as, as Napoleon was riding back to try and set up a defense base there. And he is forced to uh, sign the abdication. Now, I've, I've got some stuff that I, I, I want to read, and then I'll throw to you for, for some comments before we put him on the boat.
1: Uh, <laughs> and by, by the way, let's not forget, as, as one or two of our posters mentioned, there's always a Maurice de Talleyrand when you want to come up with the culprits and all this.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Um, uh, I'm just looking for that comment. Who was it? Um, Nick who said that uh, Talleyrand deserves a special place in Dante's final circle of hell. <laughs> which, yeah, you know, and I,
1: I tried I tried to respond to that, and we had some technical difficulties. No, no, it's up there. Nick, so, it's up. Oh, it's up there now. Okay, yeah. so if you're listening, go and see. What, what I said, of course, was that I'm not sure Dante's final circle of hell is, is bad enough for, for uh, Talleyrand, <laughs> but maybe if we put him there and made him listen to my podcast as well, that might be sufficient punishment.
0: So I'm going to read uh, for a moment here, if I may, from a a lovely old book that I've got that's actually so old it's falling apart in my hands. Actually, it's not that old. It's just that the the paperback, the uh, dust jacket on it's in bad condition. It's called The Congress of Vienna uh, by Harold Nicholson, N-I-C-O-L-S-O-N, from uh, 1948. And it's called A Study in Allied Unity, 1812-1822. to British publication, and obviously has a certain bias because of that. But he's talking about here about why Elba, how Elba came into the mix. Um, says the Tsar returned to Colincourt and informed him that Napoleon must abdicate without conditions. We shall not deprive him of all hope of existence, he said. We shall give him a kingdom of his own. What sort of kingdom, asked Colincourt, and where? Corsica was suggested, but that was impossible since it was a Department of France. Sardinia was suggested, but that also was impossible since it belonged to the house of Savoy. Corfu was suggested, but Alexander regarded that island as too close to the Balkans of the eastern question. And thus, between noon and 2pm on April 5th, they decided on Elba. Colin returned dejectedly to Fontainebleau, where he arrived at 1am on April 6th. The Emperor was asleep, and entering his bedroom, Colin roused him by shaking him deferentially by the shoulder. He gave him the news. Napoleon received it with calm bitterness. The defection of Marmont, he said, had robbed him of a great victory. He sent for Ney, who shook his head sadly and said that the army was tired out. At 6am, Napoleon sent for them again. Could Marie-Louise be allowed to join him instantly? Would she be able to persuade her father to accord him Tuscany? And why Elba of all places? He sat down heavily at the table and signed his unconditional abdication. Now, before we move on, I want to talk about the idea of exile. Now, Napoleon had defeated uh, a number of European monarchs over the, the previous 18 years. Had any of them been sent into exile?
1: You have to be kidding. Uh, no. Uh, you know, the, 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 sometimes these folks would leave uh, and, and be given uh, sanctuary. Uh, by England or elsewhere uh I had a palace in, in Scotland and 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 you could see where the louis had been put up in these sumptuous quarters in this fabulous uh palace
0: but the louis uh, were, the louis weren't sent into exile by napoleon they they ran away no. from the french people
1: well that's right but the, the, my my but my point is when other people who uh were removed from power or skedaddled from power, uh, went to places like England, uh, they were treated extremely well. Now the Allies probably thought they were treating Napoleon extremely well, and on, and on the surface they were. I mean, they did allow him to keep his, his title uh, of, of Emperor. Uh, admittedly it was a, a very small island as opposed to uh, most of western and central europe but but still uh you know they could they could sort of pat themselves on the back, back with some justification and say listen we didn't uh we didn't you know throw him into the to to a prison or 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 something uh they they allowed his various uh family members uh, to keep their titles, to keep their property, uh, to to keep their money, they they were not you know chased out of uh, wherever they, they happened to be. Uh, he was allowed uh, to take a an army, albeit a very very small army. It was supposed to be uh, you know, six or eight hundred uh, members of his imperial guard that he was allowed to hand uh, select. Uh, It was so difficult to make decisions because so many of them were desperate to go with him. He ended up with a thousand or maybe a little over and the allies sort of, you know, looked the other direction, didn't really care. He was, by the way, uh, not forbidden from ever leaving the island in spite of uh, what a lot of folks will tell you and you know, various books are entitled Escape from Elba, or you'll read about Napoleon coming back, and they'll say, Napoleon escaped from Elba. And in the movie Waterloo, you know, one of Louis the Eighteenth's aides uh, comes running up to him, and the scene says, Sire, the monster has escaped. Well, the, the reality is that the treaty didn't say anything about him not uh, being able to leave. Uh, so on, on these levels, uh, Napoleon seemed to be treated in a reasonable fashion. And then, of course, there was one more critical issue. And that was the Allies all agreed that France would pay Napoleon a penny. He would be retired, essentially, as Emperor of the French. And he would be paid. Uh, at about 2 million uh, francs uh, a year uh, by France. And at 2 million francs, he would be able to run a reasonable government, pay his soldiers of the imperial guard that went with him a reasonable salary, uh, that plus whatever he was able to generate from the industry of uh, and taxes, of course, uh, on, on Elba plus his own personal uh, source of funds would probably allow him to lead a, a very, very comfortable life. And, and you also have to understand that Elba is, and, and I've not been there, but I've been around it. I've been on Corsica and I've been on, on, on the Italian coast right opposite it, and this summer uh, you and I, Cameron, already go to, to Elba together. Uh, but from all accounts that I've seen and from all indications, Elba is a wonderful place. It's a very small island, but the weather is wonderful. It's warm. You know, it's a typical Mediterranean island, for heaven's sakes. It was very similar to, to, to Corsica in, in, in many respects, smaller, but uh, e- even uh, the, the language, uh, Italian, which Napoleon certainly knew from his childhood. Uh, it was close to Italy. Uh and, and, and this is one of the reasons that, uh, that, that Napoleon had hoped that, that Marie Louise, if, he, if she couldn't uh, uh, actually join him, would be given uh, you know, a duchy right across the water so they could at least visit from time to time. It was also close to Corsica, where, where his heritage was. Uh, so again, on the surface... If you have to be exiled, if you can't keep the throne of of France, Elba's not too shabby. I mean, let's face it, folks, if someone wants to exile me to Elba, I'm prepared to go. And Napoleon was prepared to go. He was obviously disheartened at what happened. How could you not be? How How could anyone not be absolutely devastated by the turn of events? But Napoleon was one of these people who had the ability to say, okay, that was then, this is now, it is what it is, what can I do with what I have? And, and Napoleon, as we'll see, happens uh, again after Waterloo, he gets books uh, on, on Elba. He finds all the information he can. He talks with people who have been there. He interviews them, visits with his friends uh he he collects a library he 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 does as we'll uh, look at it in a moment and uh, and you know puts together his 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 elite guard he in 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 essence does his best to prepare to do as good a job as he possibly can on his little island kingdom of 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 Elba
0: and uh, before he... Well, let me let me get back a sec. I'm, I'm still fascinated by this idea of exile. So, Na- despite what the Allies may have thought of Napoleon, and they obviously wanted to get rid of him. We've talked about this before. Even though he was elected to first the position of consul and then the position of emperor by the will of the people of France, on, on what grounds did they... Justify the ex- exiling him. I mean, it, it it seems to me to be relatively, at least in that era, unprecedented.
1: Well, the, the 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 grounds were, you know, we won and you lost, fella, and it could have been a lot worse. But again, uh,
0: he 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 defeated all of them apart from England. He defeated all of these powers at one time or another. Never sent Alexander to exile. Never never sent. Uh, you know the the kings of Austria or Prussia into exile. It seems uh, extraordinary to me. I mean, we uh, we just, I was well, I, it is. I walked my kids. It to, I was. I walked my kids to school this morning, and I was walking back, thinking about this and thinking, well, you know, we. I have always sort of just accepted the fact that he was sent into exile, not once but twice. But you know, it was fairly extraordinary.
1: No, it is. I mean, you're absolutely correct, uh, uh, Cameron, as 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 you usually are. It it was unusual, and it, and it was uh, somewhat despicable for all of my comments about what a nice place they sent him to. And it's it's all it's all predicated on the idea that if you have to go somewhere, that's it. That's a nice place to go. However, you you know, should Napoleon have ever uh, been thrown out of France? No. Uh, should should Napoleon have been told he can no longer keep his throne? No, not really. Uh, they defeat France. I mean, you say that, that, that Napoleon defeated all these other countries except England at one time or another. Yes, that's true. But in the end, in the most recent conflict, they had defeated him. They had chased his armies uh, all the way back to to Paris and and pretty much had neutralized France as a military power, so there's no question at all that the Allies were legitimately in, in the driver's seat ba- based on how the, the campaign had gone ever since the Battle of Leipzig or really actually ever since the, the withdrawal from Russia. That said, uh, there's no reason why they couldn't have simply said to Napoleon, okay. You can stay, or you can retire and live at at, at Malmaison or or at Fontainebleau, uh, wherever you like, and we'll put your son on the throne as he tried to do, uh, with with Marie Louise as 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 a regent. Uh, there's no reason why they couldn't have done that. That would have been the honorable thing to do. But remember, not everybody is acting honorably. Certainly Maurice de Talleyrand is not acting honorably. I think we talked last time that you know the Czar was initially uh actually uh, prepared to accept uh um uh, you know Napoleon's son i mean you know, even conceivable I suppose Napoleon himself in the certain circumstances or somebody else i mean it wasn't a guarantee that it was going to be Louis XVIII. That was largely uh, Talleyrand's uh, uh, doing. But uh, regardless of all that, whether or not it was the right thing to do and fair and honorable and just, uh, is, as my wife loves to say, well, it is what it is. I mean, that's that's the reality that Napoleon uh, was was facing. Uh, and, and he did try to get uh, Marie-Louise, first of all, to to join him uh, with their son but for political reasons uh, that was just not going to happen and our our listeners need to understand and this also gets to part of the answer to you know why wasn't he allowed to do this or the other thing. The the allies with some justification greatly feared Julian. They were afraid that he would come back. They were afraid that their actions which were not great, would would eventually lead to a resurgence of interest in Napoleon. And the last thing they wanted was to have Napoleon and 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 an Austrian uh, uh, Empress and uh, our, our princess rather Empress of France of the French and 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 also the King of Rome, the son, the heir apparent, united in such a way that they could become a political force together, because. You know, if Napoleon can go back to France or start lobbying people if things don't go well for Louis the Eighteenth, and they won't, uh, listen, you know, my wife and I would love to to serve as as regents, and my son, who after all is the blood of the French and of the Austrian crowns, uh, would, would be a wonderful uh unifier, you know. Uh uh, for for the future, and the Allies understood that that argument would probably carry a lot of water with a lot of folks, and they were having none of it. So not only could Marie Louise and, and and their son not not go back to him, and again to her credit, she actually tried, uh, but they wouldn't even give her the uh, the Duchy of Tuscany or, or reign over Tuscany. Uh, they instead, which was right across uh, the, the the water from uh, from Elba, instead they they gave her the Duchy of Parma. Now, Parma's a beautiful area, and, and, and I've been to where she lived and so forth, and it's, it's all very nice, but, but it's landlocked. It's it's not easily accessible, uh, and clearly they were doing what they could to keep uh, uh, the two uh, uh, spouses apart. And, and so, uh, uh, you know, obviously Napoleon... Is extremely desolate over that. Desolate over that. He's he's sad. He's he's unhappy about it. Uh, he he's suicidal. I think we talked last time about about the, 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 the effort he made to commit suicide. It didn't it didn't work out. Uh, and and he, he, he then sort of switches gears and say, okay, I'm I'm, I'm not going to get my wife and child. I can't commit suicide. I'm not going to be able to win uh, some kind of a military victory. It's obviously too late for that. Well, let's move forward. What will I get and what can I do with it? And that's what I said earlier. You know, he begins to almost look forward to going to to Elba, which again, after all, I mean, he recognizes there's there's worse places to be. Now, by the way, there's good news and bad news. I may repeat myself later when we talk about this. The good news is that it's close to, to Europe and close to people he knows, and it's the nice warm weather and all that. The bad news is that it's close to Europe, and it's therefore close to the intrigues of his enemies. So in the background, I want our listeners to start thinking that, you know, this may not be quite the paradise that that they tried to make it out to be. Nevertheless, uh, uh, Napoleon, who by the way is staying at Fontainebleau, and I, I may have mentioned in the last episode that you can go to the very room in Fontainebleau where he signed his abdication, and they they've redone it now with the original furniture that was there. You can see the little table and the chair that he sat in when he signed it. It's really you know, quite an amazing thing to see.
0: I'll actually, you, uh, it, I'll put some photos up. I took some photos when I was there a couple of years ago, which I'll put up into the show notes.
1: Okay, well, you 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 do that. I may even find find a photo or two of it as well. And and the other thing that you can do is when you go into the horseshoe uh, staircase uh, out in the courtyard, you can stand exactly where Napoleon reviewed in a very famous and emotional uh scene uh the old guard uh many of whom were going to go uh with him and you know he, he he cries out goodbye my children i should like to press you all to my heart at least i shall kiss your flag and he kisses the flag and everybody's in tears the allies had had some people there uh uh watching uh what was going on foreign commissioners and they had tears in their eyes uh these old soldiers, and if you've ever seen these images of Napoleon's old guard, the veterans of 15 or 20 years of fighting, great big huge guys with their big mustaches. I mean, these guys are the guys you want on your side, and they're all crying like babies. Uh, you know, it's just, uh, it's just apparently an amazing scene, and we, we posted, I think maybe last time, the, uh, the, uh, one of the engravings from my collection on that, uh, but they do that and then they, you know, and again, the, the movie Waterloo, I, I always am reluctant to, to promote movies because we all know that movies don't show everything as accurately as they, is as, 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 as they could, but I'll tell you the scene of him talking to the old guard, getting into his carriage and riding away is probably pretty doggone the way it was. Uh, so if you really want to get a sense of it, watch, uh, Watch, watch that. Uh, and he goes off uh, to the coast. Now, now, this is something we always have to remember uh, about Napoleon and about France. He was not universally loved. Any American president, any Australian prime minister, any British prime minister is going to have areas of the country that love him and areas of the country that don't like him at all. I won't say hate him, but don't like him. Areas of support and areas where his opponents do well. That's true for any leader. And it was true for Napoleon. There were some very conservative, very religious areas, very royalist areas, areas that had never embraced the French Revolution, areas that had become very, very tired of war. Some areas had done better economically under Napoleon than others. And so, you know, if you looked Again, for the Americans there and those of you who follow American elections at all, you know that over the last couple a decade or so in the television coverage of American elections, you have blue states and red states. The blue states being those that tend to vote Democratic and the red states those that tend to vote uh, Republican. And then you've got you know, pink states and light blue states for those that are close and leaning and so on. Well, France was the same way. And on the way down to the south, Napoleon is going through uh, the Red States, those that were uh, much more for uh, the Bourbon than for, for Napoleon. Uh, and, and, and at one point, he's actually in disguise. You know, he's traveling incognito. And he sees, he has the indignity to see, effigies of himself being, being burned. Uh, there's a few times when, when they literally... Are afraid that he's going to be discovered and and his safety is going to be compromised. Uh, but they get there, they manage to get there uh, to the coast and they get onto a ship, a British ship on the twenty eighth of April. And a couple of days later, uh, he's he's there. Uh, he, he's he's there with a Colonel Sir Neil Campbell, who was the British commissioner on the island, who who is basically the watchdog for the allies, uh, but also I think they're to provide a certain amount of legitimacy and protection to Napoleon. Because I think at least on the surface, the allies initially at least, and I think this changes, but initially they don't want anything bad happening to Napoleon because they've signed this treaty. They've guaranteed his safety they are sending him as emperor of alba he's a sovereign of what is now becoming a sovereign nation i mean they create this new country of alba essentially and they don't want anything to happen to him at least not right away at least not something they aren't controlling so you know the british commissioner on the island gives him a certain sense of protection is also a spy and it's also someone that Napoleon can, can uh, schmooze with from time to time and, and, and does. Uh, so Napoleon is there, because, and the British and, and the British allies support his being there. He's got a thousand or so of his own soldiers as a personal bodyguard. Uh, and things are looking pretty good, except for one very, very sad personal note that happens you know just just after he gets on the island he's looking around he's organizing things he's doing all things you and I'll talk about it again in a minute and then word comes that his beloved josephine has died she's died of pneumonia now josephine had remained empress Kept, kept her title, Empress of the French. So there were literally two Empresses of the French. She had stayed at Malmaison. Uh, she had become really very active socially. She had people coming to visit her. And she had become very good friends with people like, for example, Tsar Alexander. And when the Tsar, and, 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 and by the way, we always call him the Tsar. We probably always will. But for a couple of hundred years or so, or maybe more, I forget now, I just recently read this from a, a very a good friend of mine, a, a guy named Alexander uh, uh who just wrote a very, very good book uh, called The Battle of Borodino, uh, Napoleon against Kutusov. And and he, he writes in this that, uh, uh, you know, the terms czar is something... That we still use for these Russian rulers, but in the 18th and 19th century, ever since 1721, their actual title was emperor, uh, and so it was the Emperor uh, Alexander, not not technically Tsar Alexander. Uh, and I appreciate Alec- my my friend Alexander for for you know giving me that information. Uh, but again, that's the the Battle of Borodino. Uh, Napoleon against Kutuzov, and I've not read the book. I've skimmed through it, but Alexander Mikaviritsy is one of the very, very top scholars in the world right now, as far as I'm concerned, uh, originally from the Republic of Georgia. Uh, I've known him for many years, and if you want to get a, a good book on on the Russian campaign and the Battle of Borodino, published by Pen and Sword out of the UK, uh, that's a very, very good book. A- at any rate... Uh, so Josephine and and Tsar Alexander, uh, you know, hit it off pretty well, and she had hosted a party for Alexander. Now I always get kind of a chuckle out of this, in uh, those days it was it was fairly common uh, for some of the in some of these parties for the ladies to to wet down their blouses so as to make them clingy. I always say this was the first wet t-shirt contest (laughs) and and josephine got a chill from this wet t-shirt that she was wearing uh and and got very very sick and the czar who again was her friend sent his personal physician now emperor alexander's personal physician is is likely to be quite good as as these things go in that time period but the fact is it didn't work and uh and, and she died.
0: Hopefully he was uh, better than Rasputin was uh, 100 years later.
1: <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, nevertheless, Napoleon goes in the morning for a couple of days. He's absolutely devastated. I think that he had maybe hoped that they would rekindle some kind of relationship. Not, I mean, he's married and he's going to be very loyal in that sense to, to his wife, not to say he's never had an affair obviously he had but but uh but nevertheless i think he hoped and this is largely speculation on my part that he and josephine would correspond that maybe josephine would come and visit and and that a little bit uh of the old magic uh might have might have come back but but she dies and so his beginning on 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 elba is is really really a very sad uh, uh, beginning.
0: Yeah, um, I've got some uh, notes on Josephine's death that um, I like. This is from um, Max Gallo's quartet of novels. Have you read those?
1: You know, I've not read those. I I barely have time, in all honesty, to read uh, the straight history that i would like to read uh so i've I've not been able to take the time to read novels max gallo's novels are well regarded there's been uh some new ones out as well by other authors and i would love to read them i've got one upstairs uh by my reading uh, chair uh but but there it sits uh, untouched so far
0: i really i haven't finished them i've um I think I've read two and a half. I've got them all, and I'm sort of halfway through the third volume. Uh, I struggle to get through all the books that I have to read. But one of the things I've enjoyed about them, he he writes them in the first person, and so he and obviously he's uh, inventing a lot of what Napoleon is thinking and saying. Some of it is pulled from historical sources, but he's taken the you know the liberties that an author sometimes takes to do a reconstruction of a historical figure. But the thing I love about them so much is that the way he writes Napoleon is the way I imagine Napoleon to be. And um, he he has some sections from his fourth novel, which is called Napoleon, the Immortal of St. Helena, which um, I thought I'd read some from. Uh, skipping back a bit... Actually, well, um, yeah, let me skip back a bit further before I forget. Before I get onto that, I'm getting back to Harold Nicholson's The Congress of Vienna because as an Australian, as I was rereading this earlier, I was um, fascinated. We talk about Tsar uh, Alexander, or Emperor Alexander, as as you pointed out, suggesting Elba. Um, Harold Nicholson writes that that not everybody was uh, very keen on Elba. Um... Castlereagh, who was the uh, British representative at the, uh, the, the, the meeting of the Allies, would have preferred, and his words are, some less objectionable station, which is interesting coming from the British. He was prepared even to consider that Napoleon should be granted asylum in Great Britain, where Fort George had already been suggested. It is doubtful whether this suggestion would have been approved by the Cabinet. A subsequent proposal that the fallen emperor should be interned at Gibraltar was attacked by the Times newspaper in trenchant terms. We should be really sorry, wrote the Times, if any British possession were polluted by such a wretch, he would be a disgrace to Botany Bay. Now, (laughs) as an Australian of the 21st century, let me say that if they had sent Napoleon to Botany Bay, which was the, back then, we're talking 1814, that was where... Convicts from uh, Great Britain had been sent for 30 years, since 1788. Uh, It would have been incredibly objectionable, I'm sure, to Napoleon, but uh, how marvellous if Napoleon had been sent to Australia in 1814. Uh, I can just imagine what wonderful things that could have done to Australia's history. Anyway, it wasn't to be. Um, Fuchsia, for his part, urged that the ex emperor should be deported to the United States. Metternich, Fouché, Fouché, yeah. yeah. Metternich contended that to send Napoleon to Elba would be to invite another war within two years. <laughs> Metternich had his finger on the pulse, didn't he? He even yes. objected to the proposal that the Empress Marie Louise should be accorded the ducy of Parma. At 3 p.m., a final meeting took place. The tra- terms of the Treaty of the Abdication were finally agreed to, and obviously they decided on Elba. But um, I just love the bit about it. Even even mentioning Botany Bay now to move on to Max Gallo,
1: we talk about. I, and by the way, let me let, let me interrupt briefly and, and say that like like you, uh, with your sort of fantasy of you know what would it have been like if Napoleon had come to Australia, uh, the idea that he would have been sent to the United States legitimately uh, in eighteen fourteen uh, makes makes me also absolutely uh, fascinated with thoughts of of what that would have done what it would have been like if napoleon had, had come to philadelphia or, or more likely gone to uh, new orleans a very french uh city uh and and how that would have worked out i mean it's and we'll 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 have that same inspection when we talk about 1815 after waterloo but but uh uh you know it's 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 a really, really interesting idea australia or or the United states and uh, one one almost wishes uh, that that's the way it had worked out now
0: um jumping back in time a little bit uh, to after Napoleon has just signed the abdication, we mentioned that uh, he was eager for Marie louise to join him, but while he's at Fontainebleau. Marie Valeska arrives and wants an audience with him and he doesn't see her. Now we've talked about her, audiences may remember earlier on he, he met her uh, when he was in Poland and she was sort of given to him in some ways as his mistress when he was in Poland and it was hoped I, I suggest that he would look favorably upon granting Poland uh, autonomy as part of that, but he developed a genuine affection for her, and we've often suggested that outside of Josephine, and he obviously had affection for Marie-Louise as well, but Marie Valesqua, I always struggle to say her name, was not only the mother of his child or his other child, his first child, in fact, as far as we know, but was also one of his great loves, but he doesn't see her. And the way that Max Gallo writes, he says... um, She is alone. She, Marie Luweska is waiting in one of the galleries of the palace, explains the servant. She is alone. She wants to see the emperor. He shakes his head. He can't. He mustn't. Because if it becomes known that he has received Marie Luweska, perhaps they will use it as an argument to stop Marie Louise joining him with his son. But this refusal is like a surrender, another abdication. Life is unbearable to me, he says again. And um, it's that (coughs) night where he tries to commit suicide. Now I know we mentioned this in the last episode and you mentioned it earlier on but when I was talking about character and and how it shows itself during times of great personal defeat I'm fascinated by this period. I'm fascinated by the fact that he tries first of all to commit suicide. He takes the poison that he'd kept with him as you know soldiers uh, do you know and secret service agents if if uh, television and Hollywood is to be believed, uh, still do to this day in event that they get captured. (laughs) And uh, he, he tries to take the poison. He is so despondent, he tries to kill himself, but his body vomits up the poison. He asks Dr. Ivan to give him a stronger dose, but Ivan won't. He says to Napoleon that he's not a murderer. And in Max Gallo's words, Napoleon thinks to himself, "Cowards, all cowards. They want me to die for my sake and theirs. I can see it on their faces. But they don't dare do anything or take any decisions, so they'll let me vomit death back up and survive." So, so I mean, (laughs) that's good writing. I try and put myself into his mind at this time. You know, having built up so much and then lost it all, he finally decides to kill himself. Now he is a father. And, and to, to, to try to commit suicide when you are a father is, you know, must uh, amount to a, a huge amount of distress, and, uh, but he survives. And, and then he, uh, again, um, the way that uh, Max Gallo writes afterwards, he says, um, I will live since death doesn't want me in my bed any more than it does on the battlefield. There will be courage too in enduring life after such events. I will write the history of the brave. Now, and then we have him um, go to Welba, and and I've said to you on, and I said at the beginning of the show, I love the fact that after he has tried and failed at suicide, he then embarks on this new leg of his adventure, and the book that. I sort of use as the basis for the Elba period, which I've always tried to find information on is, uh, you mentioned it earlier, the escape from Elba by Mackenzie, which is, is pretty much focuses on his time in Elba and then his um, departure from Elba. But um, I've, I've got some, just I won't read too much from it, but there's some great quotes in here that uh, I marked out and I'm going to try to find again before I go on.
1: Uh, that's one. That's, by the way, a very good book, uh, Mackenzie. It's one of the classics uh, on the period. There's not as much stuff written on Napoleon's time on Elba uh, as there as there as, as you might expect there would be. Although there's been some, you get a lot of stuff on the eighteen thirteen fourteen campaign, and of course a lot of stuff on the on the Hundred Days itself. Uh, another very good friend of mine, uh, Michael Legere, uh, just came out with a book called *The Fall of Napoleon and the Allied Invasion of France* in 1813-1814 by Cambridge University Press. Just came out, and I mentioned that th- these two books today because a number of our e- emailers and so on have said, "Listen, uh, give us some ideas of books that you consider good that uh, we could uh, listen to, or excuse me, could read." And so uh the, These two books have just now come out and 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 I think they're well worth uh uh your consideration Do you need to get that no <laughs> okay
0: he's um so i'm going to read from um mackenzie here so he's arrived on Elba. And you mentioned a bit about the journey over there on Undaunted, which is interesting, the way he gets up early in the morning and interrogates the captain of the ship about all manner of operation of the boat. And as he always tended to do throughout his life, has this incredible ability and curiosity for understanding the details of how things work and loves the minuté of understanding the... Operations and organizations of everything from the most mundane to the most complex, from philosophy through to science and mathematics to obviously politics. And um, it writes, uh, Mackenzie writes here the emperor appeared to be indefatigable, Pons de la Hero remarked, because he did only what he wanted, how he wanted, and when he wanted. It is true that the task of ruling Europe had taught Napoleon how to conserve his energies, but in his first days on Elba, he drove himself hard. I have never seen a man in any situation of life with so much personal activity and restless perseverance, Colonel Campbell concluded after riding about the island with Napoleon. He appears to take so much pleasure in perpetual movement and in seeing those who accompany him sink under fatigue, as has been the case on several occasions when I have accompanied him. I do not think it possible for him to sit down to study on any pursuits of retirement, as proclaimed by him to be his intention, as long as his state of health permits corporeal exercise. Curious by nature and stimulated by novelty, Napoleon was so keen to explore his inheritance that he was genuinely genuinely busy from dawn until dusk familiarising himself with the problems of Elba and taking stock of its limited assets. And in any case, an attempt to impose himself on his little kingdom was better than brooding on the malign twist of fortune which had brought him there. Now, it, you know, in my mind, I, I kind of think of... If, if you imagine Bill Gates. If Bill Gates, if the shareholders and the board of, of Microsoft turn around one day and basically said to Bill Gates, You're out, buster! I don't care what you've built over 32 years. It's all gone. Give us back your shares. Give us back your income. Give us back your title. You've got nothing. What we're going to give you is the local fish and chip shop. This is, <laughs> this, this is what you can do. You're going to live upstairs. You're going to go and run the local fish and chip shop or the local milk bar on the corner. And this is like him going, okay great, let's turn this into the best goddamn milk bar on the planet or the best damn, you know, fish and chip shop ever. It's, you know, it says to me a lot about the psychology, the psyche, the character, the personality of the self-made man. And, you know, many people have said that Napoleon was the first truly self-made man in many ways. You know, he built himself up. He was the first modern entrepreneur who built himself out. Yeah, I mean, you could go back and say maybe Caesar was, but, you know, in, in a modern sense, Napoleon. and, and well, sure. After he comes to terms with what's happened, maybe, as as Mackenzie writes, this is his way of focusing on the present, focusing on the future, not... You know, it would be easy to imagine. I can imagine if, it, if I was in his situation, I would... Curl up in a little ball in in the corner of the room and and get get a case of whiskey and and basically just drink myself into oblivion. And and you and I have laughed on many occasions um, on on the show and off the show. Whenever today I, I'm in situations of of certain amount of stress where things don't go my way, I ask myself what would Napoleon do. And and this is what I love about Elba so much. He jumps into this place and he just starts reorganizing it. He's he's reorganizing the industry and he's creating new laws and new taxes and he's building roads and he's he's inviting people to meet with him and he's he just turns the place upside down he's there for less than a year i think he's there for 8 or 9 months but in that time he is this incredible ball of energy and and i just find that absolutely fascinating. And again, when we talk about Napoleon and his character, there are certain events that to me ring out loud uh, over the course of his tri- history. How he treats the monarchs that he defeats, how he treats people that he had every right to have assassinated like Talleyrand, but doesn't. And how he treats uh, Josephine after the divorce and how he, you know, this is another one of those times how he conducts himself in this period of exile.
1: Well, you're right, but uh, frankly, uh, two two quick comments. Number number one, it shouldn't be surprising, uh, knowing what you know about Napoleon, that that he would do all this. Uh, we cannot imagine him curling up in a corner and 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 drinking himself into oblivion, even though he did try to commit suicide. Of course, uh, psychologists will tell you that. Few really try to commit suicide. It's really just a call for help, and you know who, who knows. But the other thing, Cameron, it must be said that what I know of you is that I don't see you buying a case of of, of, of even my medication and 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 uh, curling up in a corner if things were to go bad for you. So so you you would probably do very much the same kind of thing that that Napoleon did. But it, but you're absolutely right. He did, you know. Work on the defenses. By the way, there was a good reason for that, because there was always this fear that someone might try to come and 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 take it all away from him. So he did what he could to to uh, prepare a, a a defense against uh, a, an attack. He had a very very small army, but it's a very small country too, and and so you know he figured he could you know raise raise, raise some some defense anyway. Uh, he reorganized the tax codes, he reorganized the, 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 the legal system and making huge improvements as, as he had before. Uh, he had a huge social life, by the way. Uh, he, his, uh, his mother was there. His sister Pauline uh, was there. Uh, any number of people, including lots of British folks. I mean. Uh, Sir Neil Campbell certainly, but other people. I've got a number of of, of little pamphlets and books and so forth, uh, which are uh, uh, descriptions by by people who had gone to Elba and had been granted an audience with Napoleon. And here's here's what they talked about, and here's these people's impressions uh, of of Napoleon. Uh, so he's got family, he's got friends, he's got international uh, visitors, uh, Marie Valeska. Uh, shows up uh, with, with, with their son for a while, uh, as, as I think we've talked about in, in the past. They had been on and off again, you know, in, in terms of being in touch. Uh, she was quite prepared to stay there. Uh, but Napoleon had a, an interesting sense of propriety. Uh, he, he didn't want a scandal. He didn't really want people, you know, he had seen the caricature artist in Great Britain, just destroy him, destroy Josephine, and so on, and he didn't want to give them grist for the mill. You know, here's Napoleon, you know, who's married to, to the, the, the Duchess of Parma, and yet and yet here he is cavorting with this, with this young Polish uh, mistress with their ill-begotten son. Uh, quite frankly, and I, I, I think I mentioned this in, 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 in Napoleon for Dummies, uh, if he had allowed her to stay his life would have been a heck of a lot better, uh, much more pleasant. Maybe he would have stayed there if, if Marie Valeska had, had stayed. It's, it's, it's hard to say. But, of course, he had visions of, you know, early on at least, and I think foolishly, you know, he probably at least had visions that Marie Louise would eventually be able to come and, and so on. Uh, but as we all know, uh, Marie Louise's father had already sent Count uh, uh, von uh, Niprig uh, to seduce her. Uh, he was very successful at that. Uh, and she stopped writing Napoleon after a while. And, and uh, you know, this this has to have been just devastating to Napoleon to suddenly not even get letters from the wife to whom he was really trying to be very loyal by the way, after Napoleon dies, uh, Marie-Louise and the Count get married. They rule as the Duke and Duchess of Parma. Uh, they raise the son uh, as the Duke of Reichstadt, actually in Vienna. But he dies in 1832 at the age of 21 of TB. So that's a very, it's very sad all the way around. I've got quite a number of very, very interesting uh, images, both in engravings and and, and statues of uh, of Of napoleon's son uh, Europe was quite fascinated with him, especially as it happened when he when he died at the age of twenty one uh, so on the surface, Napoleon has a lot of good stuff going on you know he's he's got all these people coming to visit him he 's socializing uh All sorts of people want to see the great Napoleon. He may have been deposed. He may be down on this little tiny nothing, you know, podunk island, but he is Napoleon LeGrand and and people want to see him. Uh, He he gets uh, politicians come to see him, scientists, uh, uh, lots and lots and lots of British folks come to see him. Uh, Colonel Campbell, as I mentioned before, uh, comes to his parties. They have they have meals together, and they really get along quite well. I mean, you can get Campbell's memoirs, and and and, and you know he obviously is is quite taken with Napoleon. Uh, but a, a lot of this, as good as it seems, is to a very significant extent on the surface. There's at least three major problems that create tension. Number one, Napoleon, for all of the activity that you and I have talked about, and you're absolutely right, my friend, it's a fascinating period of time, and Napoleon is just a whirlwind of activity. But it's still a little tiny island. It's still not France. Not Western Europe, not Western and Central Europe. It's, you know, a a big fish in a little pond, as the expression goes. And Napoleon, ruling only a few thousand people, begins to get bored. You can can go through the motions, you can have the parties, you can do this, you can do that. But it's, it's, it's still not the same, and Napoleon knows it. And, and and that was a big mistake, I believe, on the part of the Allies. They, first of all, should have let his wife be there with them. If he has his wife and son, any parent out there knows, and, and you're you're a parent, Cameron, that you can put a lot of energy, inwardly, if you will, into raising one or more children. And, and by the way, he, he might have had more children had, had she been there. Uh and that can can take the, the, the edge off any boredom from your job, from your day job, as it were. If you've got your family with you, and you're as family-oriented as he was, and he was very family-oriented, that's part of his Corsican heritage, then all this other boredom might very well have, have, have not been all that uh, relevant. Or at the very least... If you put Marie-Louise right across the little, a little strip of water between, between Tuscany and, and, and uh, Elba, then maybe with occasional visitations, Napoleon will settle down, write his memoirs, and do the stuff he talked about doing. So that's number one. He's bored and he hasn't got his wife with him or a son. Number two, he starts to get nervous. You mentioned that there were a variety of options that were being considered for Napoleon, one of which was Fort George, which is in northern Scotland, an abysmal climate. I was at Fort George uh, a couple of summers ago, and it's really very interesting. It's quite nice. Uh, the house at Fort George is very impressive. I... The the, a, the the officer of the day was kind enough to give me a a tour uh, of Fort George, and in time I will give you some photographs uh, for uh, for the site if you like. But it's still on a relatively small military base in a climate that I don't know what the Scots think of it, but but I would not like it in the winter, I'm sure, and I doubt that Napoleon, a Corsican. Uh, would would be particularly pleased uh, with it. The summer when I was there, it was gorgeous. Okay? But what you didn't mention is there were other things that had been discussed. Prison ships had been discussed. The hulks, the dreadful hulks. Uh, St. Helena had been discussed. A, A prison someplace, I don't know where, just a prison in general, had been discussed. Uh... So, Napoleon always understands that there's these other options that were out there. And he also knows that an awful lot of the Allies, including some critical members of the leadership, and of course, Talleyrand, were still a bit nervous that Napoleon had such a free reign and so close down there on Elba. So there's a real serious concern that, you know, I'm not so sure we ought to, even though we've got this treaty and so on, I'm not so sure that we ought to let this be the final word on the subject. Now it's, and, and of course the, 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 the press was, was uh, attacking Napoleon, and there were rumors everywhere you went of, of the possibility of an assassination. He had his bodyguards. He had, you know, put the light, you know, watchtowers on the coast and so on. But, you know, it's not that tough to slip somebody in there. Uh, so Napoleon's worried about that. And then number three, and the coup de grace for any possibility that Napoleon would be willing to live out his life where he was. Louis XVIII, no. No one's favorite. You always know, kind of like Louis Sixteenth, but there's not a whole lot of good to be said about Louis Eighteenth. although he was at least somewhat well-meaning. He was supposed to pay Napoleon two million francs a year, his pension fund. He was also supposed to pay similar amounts, very large amounts, to Napoleon's mother, And his sister Pauline, along with the rest of the family. Now, I mentioned Pauline and Leticia, Madame Mare, because they were living with Napoleon. And any money they got would be, you know, sort of tossed into the kitty. Now, with two million francs to him, and I don't know how much to the two ladies, plus his own Bonaparte money, and whatever else he could generate in terms of his share of the taxes on Elba would have been enough to keep him in a pretty good lifestyle and pay his soldiers. But unbelievably, Louis didn't pay so much as a sou to Napoleon. Louis absolutely refused to pay To this day, my friend, I have no clue as to what kind of a lunacy argument (laughs) Louis XVIII used not paying Napoleon. It wasn't like France was so broke that that amount of money was was going to be a, a devastating factor to the French economy. And he knew, he had to have known that Napoleon needed that money. And he was afraid that Napoleon would come back. If anyone had anything to lose, it was Louis XVIII. And yet, he didn't pay him a a penny of that money. And by the way, the Allies knew as I do and you do and our listeners do, that was a really, really dumb thing to do. And the Allies pleaded with Louis, but Louis held his ground. Now, and, and and dummies, I say, well, you know, why didn't they pay it? And there's another thing I don't really understand. If they were so convinced that it would take this pension, my goodness, Russia and Austria and Great Britain, those three alone, never mind Spain and Sweden and so on, could have easily coughed up. Let's say it's the 2 million plus another 2 million apiece to the 2 late. Let's say it's 4 million. I don't recall. It's in the treaty, but, you know, 4 million. Fine. They could easy cough it up and keep Napoleon living in a lifestyle that might be difficult for him to leave. But they don't for whatever reason. And as a result, number one, Napoleon says, "Uh uh-oh, what's the message here? number two he begins to think well if they're going to break the treaty on that what else are they going to break and number three and and perhaps most of all he needed the money his personal fortune wasn't that great i mean it was pretty big compared to me and you well compared to me i don't know about you but uh it was you know large but it wasn't large enough to run a whole country Small as it may have been, it's still a country, a little Elba. Uh, And and so Napoleon, (laughs) who was very, very good at at checking out the books, understood that, you know, without that income, without, again, let's say 4 million francs a year, 3 million, I'm going to be in tough shape. The money is not going to last forever. And if they won't pay, I'm going to start laying people off. And I'll start laying off my soldiers or whatever. And if I start doing that, first of all, life isn't going to be all that much fun. And secondly, and much more importantly, I'm going to begin to lose my bodyguard. I'm going to begin to lose the sense of personal safety that I have. Because these guys, they're dedicated to Napoleon, but they have to eat. They've got to buy the groceries. They've got to have money. So it's a real serious issue. And Napoleon has to really sit down and think about it. And he's got uh, several options. And and, and and unless you have something you want to say right now, I'll kind of run through the options.
0: Well, um, <clears throat> no. Well, I was just going to point out the fact that um, you know, from Napoleon's perspective, as you say, now that Louis and, and Louis the Eighteenth and France have, have defaulted on their part of the Treaty of Fontainebleau, which was his pension.
1: Hey, by the way, they violated the treaty, which technically means that Napoleon is no longer bound by it. Another really stupid. Aspect of this
0: uh, This is exactly the point I was going to make. They—they they yes, had. Sir. That's all right. They had defaulted on the treaty, so therefore the treaty wasn't being kept by them, and and it was um, in it was voided by by Louis the Eighteenth, as you say, completely stupid. And you know you've already said it. I've got uh, stuff here in in this book on the this book on uh, the Congress of Vienna, which which goes into detail talking about how the rest of the Allies were urging Louis uh, politely but persistently to cough up the money, but he never
1: paid a damn
0: cent. And now,
1: now I, I will admit I've not read that book. Does it say or at least speculate why Louis didn't pay? Um, well,
0: no. It, 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 let me read just a, a few paragraphs here. It says, the pension was never paid. The allied plenipotentiaries at Vienna, foreseeing that this violation of the Treaty of Fontainebleau might drive Napoleon to desperation, protested mildly but frequently to Talleyrand. People, wrote the latter, to Louis XVIII on October 13, 1814, often wonder, and Lord Castlereagh plainly asked me, whether the Treaty of April eleventh is being put into execution. The silence of the budget in this respect is being remarked by the Tsar of Russia. Prince Metternich says that Austria cannot be expected to pay off the interest on the monies invested in the Mont-de-Milan Bank if France does not execute the clauses of the treaty which are incumbent on her. On every occasion, this matter always reappears under different forms and almost always in an unpleasant manner. However painful it may be to dwell on such money matters, I can but say to Your Majesty that it is desirable that something be done in this respect. A letter from Monsieur de Jacor, who by command of your majesty should inform me of it, would certainly have a good effect. This is from Talleyrand, right, to Louis. A reply Mm -hmm. was returned to this letter by Louis XVIII on October 21st. He informed Talleyrand that he would be prepared to pay even a larger pension than that provided under the Treaty of Fontainebleau if the excellent idea of the Azores were put into execution. Now, I, I can't really recall what this idea of the Azores were, but there was at least you know a, a suggestion by Louis that he, he would pay even a greater sum of money. The book goes on to say, There is no evidence that Napoleon ever knew of this reply. He possessed his sources of information, but the fact remains that the money promised and guaranteed was never paid. It was the failure on the part of Louis Eighteenth and indirectly of the Allies to carry out the Treaty of Fontainebleau, or what Madame d'Arblay mildly calls this general failure of foresight, which convinced Napoleon that he was morally absolved from his own signature to that treaty. But um, no, it it doesn't really say, uh, you know, what Louis was thinking. I mean, I know that on one or two occasions he claimed that they didn't have enough funds, but as you say, a couple of million pounds, I think it was, uh, a couple of million francs, wasn't really uh, a huge amount of money, even back then, for France's overall budget. And it was, uh, you know, it was such a key item on the budget that you'd think it would be taking a priority but they blew it and um you know uh so you were going to talk about what napoleon's options were we're an hour and 22 in so um let's let's wind it up
1: well well we 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 will wind it up and in the azure horse was another one of the areas where they talked about sending napoleon and and further away from france i suppose uh at any rate, to, to, to sort of wrap up Napoleon's situation, uh, number one, he, he, he could just leave and go to the United States. At this point, he has a lot of money. He's got a lot of connections. He has the theoretical legal ability to leave. Now, it may very well be he might have to to sort of sneak out or make a run for it as it were but he he had the ability to do that and he would be a reigning monarch arriving in the United States. Uh, He could live in New Orleans or or maybe on the East Coast someplace, uh, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Washington DC uh, as a very very wealthy gentleman uh, expatriate emperor. Uh, He would have had a lot of attention but he would have been far enough away that maybe the leaders of Europe would have said, fine, let him stay there and play his little games. Or maybe they would have sent assassins. I mean, no one can be sure. But that was a real possibility. Just go to the United States. That, by the way, is, 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 is that's what I vote for. Okay? The, the second thing he could have done is gone into Italy, take his thousand men and, and his money and gone to Italy. He had a lot of popularity throughout much of Italy. He had given the Italians a great deal. We've commented before. The Italians today see him uh, as one of the fathers of of the Risorgimento, of of the reunification uh, of of Italy. Uh you know he's he he's got King Murata down there, the King of Naples. Uh, they've had a little tiny reconciliation. So you know, and he's got his his. Uh, uh his 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 wife uh, rather excuse me his 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 sister is married to to Mira, so he's got that uh his his wife Marie louise controls the duchy of parma and and uh if he goes down there and sort of forces the issue uh and maybe he arranges for Nippering to be you know removed uh that that might be okay so now he's sitting down there in Italy with a pretty substantial military uh, force I would imagine at that point. Uh, and he says, listen, folks, this is where I want to stay. My wife's here. My family is here. Uh, I seek, I've got the protection of, of the king of Naples. Uh, you leave me alone. I'll leave you alone. Well, you know, they might have bought that. And Napoleon might very well have stayed because Naples and Italy and all that, that's a hell of a lot bigger than than, than Elba. You know, so he, he, he might have been happy there, and then of course, finally, uh, there is the possibility of trying to regain power uh, in, in 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 France itself. Uh, he had a lot of comments from people that the French were not very happy with Louis the Eighteenth. They never saw him as evil. He had given them the, the so-called Charter of Rights, uh, which is uh, pretty interesting. I'll send you some images on that if you like. Uh, and, and he had tried to seem to be willing to keep things in an even keel, uh, but he had people in his family, and some of his supporters were absolutely reactionary, extreme. Uh, some of his advisors were extreme, many of the nobles that came back from their exile were demanding that the land that had been taken from them be given back to them, the church wanted its land return and lots and lots of people have been living on that land thank you very much for 20 years since the revolution and now there was talk of having to give it all back they wanted their privileges back they they wanted to pretend that 25 years of history had never happened that the French Revolution, going back to to, to the late 1780s, certainly 1789, that none of that had ever happened and we're going back to the old system. And the French people were not interested in that at all. And the veterans, Napoleon's army. Remember, my friends, Napoleon was popular with no one more than his army and his army had been treated pretty shabbily. a lot of them have been kicked out of the army a lot of others have been put on half pay well you try going on to half pay uh, there was no social security kind of stuff then uh, they see what's going on they, they, they see Louis and his buddies uh, you know acting as though none of, none of the stuff they had accomplished had ever meant anything and they begin to miss Napoleon. They begin to miss the glory days of the Empire, they begin to miss the the, 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 the principles of the French Revolution, they begin to miss being a full-pay officer, whether they're a general or, or lower, uh, and by the way, again, they, be, they, they really still love uh, their Emperor. Well, those are some pretty good choices. And again, if it had been up to me, I would have probably said, in the order I just told them to you, you know, go to the United States, go to Italy, or go to France. But Napoleon decided, and there's controversy as to to who exactly sort of pushed him over, over the line on this, but Napoleon decides that he will go to France. That the only way he can feel truly secure is to go back to the people that adored him, to go back amidst the huge army that is loyal to him and then he will be able, I believe in his eyes, to rule France peacefully and continue all the reforms and so on uh, that he did. So we will leave you dear listeners with Napoleon in the month of February, uh, deciding that he's going to go back to France. And next time we'll talk about, you know, a few of the things that go into that decision. And we will begin what will probably be at least two and maybe three episodes on one of the most amazing periods in Napoleonic history or in any history. The so-called saint the Hundred Days. Of Napoleon's career.
0: One of the One most of the exciting season. periods oh, yeah. of Napoleonic history, I have to say. I remember the. I, 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 remember I know you were leading up to a big ending there, but I just have to say this while I think of it. <laughs> I, I can remember, I still today, the first time I read my first book on Napoleon, which uh, we've mentioned before was Vincent Cronin's uh, biography 20 years ago, probably and i remember to this day reading the section on the the return from elba and l- literally yelling yelling out with laughter <laughs> with this just this i'd never heard this story before you know and i was i don't know i was probably in uh, my late teens early 20s or something when i first read it i remember just uh, just laughing with with uh, just pure joy at the story of how he he walked back into france i mean just one of the most unbelievable stories in all of history for my money it really is coming it up really it, in the next episode really of the napoleon bonaparte podcast here on tpn with my friend david
1: markham good to talk with you as always my friend and we'll see you all next time